Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. Dashbit released an Elixir case study. This one is with Discord. I'm going to throw some numbers at you because it's really impressive. Dashbit talks with Discord and Discord says that they crossed more than 12 million, 12 million, that's with an M million, concurrent users across all their servers with more than 26 million WebSocket events to clients per second. That's amazing. Discord runs a cluster of about 400 to 500 Elixir machines. Uh, Here's the clencher. It's maintained by five engineers. My goodness. All right. And then Discord uh, uses uh, Rust to create a new type in Elixir, and they call uh, that type the ordered set to improve some performance of big lists. There's a lot of good stories uh, in the case study, so I encourage you to go check it out. And I'm also going to include a link to uh, Discord's blog uh, where they talk about the ordered set and how they used Rust to help scale Discord up to those kinds of numbers. Codebeam Virtual 2020 has some videos that have been launched, and you can find them on YouTube in a nice little playlist that kind of groups them together with keynotes and some other sessions as well. So that's something to check out. Oban version 2.2 was released. A lot of good updates here. Uh, The big feature that I see is that dynamic Ecto repos are now supported with Oban. Uh, Oban continues to be a good library. I encourage you to check it out if you're looking for a job processing queue. Uh, This one is backed by Postgres. Uh, So it's pretty interesting. It's really solid. Check it out. There's a new feature coming to IEX when you press tab after the open paren in a function, you'll be able to see its definition. It's useful when you don't remember the order of arguments. So check out a link in the show notes. That's going to be really helpful. I love that. Yeah, looking forward to it. Since the release of Ecto 3.5, there have been two point releases, and these are fixing some small issues and adding new features. So if you're already on 3.5, make sure you get the update at least to get the fixes. Uh, One of the new features that's added is a repo.reload function, where this can take a given schema and give you a fresh version of that from the database and reload that, or even a list of schemas of all the same type of schema, and it will preserve the order and give you like a fresh updated version of that. So that can be something really handy. And you can check out a link in the show notes for the change log. And last, Sasha Yurik released his library parent 0.11. Parent is a library or it's a toolkit that he's created around an alternate way of doing supervisors. He's just found that sometimes the supervision with the nesting of the trees where you have the different strategies. This library is sets out to set up a different way of doing that and with the goal of helping to keep the supervision tree flatter. So it's something that's interesting you might be interested in looking at. So I'll have a link to that in the show notes. And that's it for the news. Today, we are pleased to be joined by Herman Velasco. Herman, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. We wanted to invite you on to talk about a book that you're working on, which is around testing and mm-hmm. with Phoenix. So I think it's a, a very interesting topic. We want to dig into that. But before we do, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of where you live, what kind of work you do? Yeah, absolutely. So I currently live in Atlanta, uh, just as of a few months ago. I lived in Philly before that and in Boston for many, many, many years, but I'm originally from Bolivia, if you want to go that far back. I work at ThoughtBot, and that's a consultancy, as David will know, and we work with all kinds of projects and clients. A lot of the focus is on making sure we help our clients achieve either product market fit, if it's an early stage, or, you know, we we do some stuff like um, team training and staff augmentation kind of thing as well. But the, the things we really love to do is help clients really find that fit. 
And so we use all kinds of technologies. Elixir, of course, is my favorite. <laughs> so I, I push for it as much as I can. But yeah, that's what I do during the day, let's say. And the book is what I've been doing at other times. I know you and David have worked together before. So David, maybe you can kind of give a little background there. Yeah, yeah. So I used to work at ThoughtBot too um, a couple of years, years back ago. I work at TaxJar now, a product company that focuses on sales tax. But before that, I, I worked at a place called uh, ThoughtBot. And um, ThoughtBot was actually my first place where I worked on Elixir full time. So I, I, that's, where, that's where I got my Elixir legs. And I didn't work with uh, Herman directly, unfortunately. I always wanted to. Um, this was back when you were living in Boston. And I was in the Raleigh office. Back then, I, I'd like to, yeah, I like to consider like the Raleigh office as, as the, uh, the Elixir shop. We did, <laughs> we did like almost 100% Elixir. And there wasn't a whole lot that I saw at, that I noticed anyway. I mean, um, I was a new thought botter at the time. So th there wasn't a whole lot of Elixir that I saw that the rest of the company was doing. But maybe that's where you can fill in some of my holes about ThoughtBot. Because I know that ThoughtBot has a great reputation for Ruby work uh, and smart work. There's been a lot, of, a lot of blog posts about Elm. I've seen some stuff on Scala. I've seen plenty of Ruby stuff. A lot of like, pr yeah, like you said, product fit kind of uh, consultation kind of advice. And you'd mentioned that you try to, to vouch for Elixir as much as you can there. I've since left ThoughtBot, so I don't know how, how things have gone on since then. But I, I don't know. We could start there. How, how do you think ThoughtBot you know, adopted Elixir? Do you think how much of a tool of it is Elixir in ThoughtBot's tool belt for, for clients? Yeah, no, it's, a, it's an excellent question. And of course, you have the, the insider knowledge. I, uh, <laughs> it's funny yeah. that we would say the Raleigh office is the, uh, the Elixir, would we say the, the front or something? Uh, <laughs> Because um, I, I always thought Boston... At the Boston, time, anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, especially at the time, because I always thought Boston, you know, we had several several people who not only did like Elixir client work at Boston, but did a lot of the open source stuff as well. Yeah. So Paul, Blake are people I'm thinking of, you know, uh, who started uh, Ex Machina, Bamboo. And they also, we have an internal tool, Constable, which is for uh, company announcements. That's also um, Elixir and Phoenix. And so they started a lot of those things. And uh, Josh as well, Josh uh, Steiner, who also left. But... To to the question of like Thoughtbot does a lot of other things. So how much Elixir do we do, or how do we pitch it, and and that kind of thing. The interesting thing about Thoughtbot is that the one constant is change. Is what I would say. We have these you know well publicized um, the like the Thoughtbot way of doing things, but even that is it changes over time, right? Uh, and what I really like about it is that if you can pitch it, and if you can teach it, and if you can advocate for it, it, you know, it becomes a, a language and a tool that you can use. But because of that side, you also run into the same issues that other companies have, right? When you have a, a, a developer who likes Elixir, who wants to adopt it, you can't just immediately switch the company to doing all Elixir if they were doing Ruby. Uh, so, so you run into similar problems where you have to convince people and do a little bit of training, right? Teach them what this is all about. So I think there's, there's definitely some of that, right? There's, um, and with ThoughtBot, I think there's so much Rails knowledge that you really have to get people to understand the beam because they look at Phoenix, for example, and they say, well, it looks similar. And, and it might, you know, unless they understand the, the power of the beam behind Phoenix, they, they might not really pick it up. And so I, I find that's yeah. the kind of key that you have to find and unlock with people. I remember, and that, I think maybe that's what I liked about the, 
the Raleigh. You're you're right. Now that you laid out the facts there with all with Ex Machina, Bamboo, and Constable, yeah, it makes sense. Maybe Boston really was the elixir office, but um, but the the thing that I remember about Raleigh was that everybody there in the in the office was advocating for elixir. You know, whereas Boston larger office had a lot more yeah. variety of of experience there. Yeah. And so when we got a new project in in Raleigh, um, it was almost guaranteed. Yeah, we're going to do Elixir here because like we don't we have to convince who like ourselves. Yeah, we're going to do it. <laughs> right, right. And that was a benefit, I think, of the Raleigh office. I think that was that is a benefit where you have a majority of the office that is uh, pulling for a particular technology. It's easier to just if a client because many clients come without a technology in mind, so we can you know um, advise them on what's a good fit. And if it's a good fit and we want to use it, you know, then we use that technology. But, you know, there are other clients that come with a, with a predetermined uh, technology. But I think that's, yeah, you're right. That's where the rally office definitely shined. So one of the other things, maybe the, the, the most prominent thing that before I worked at ThoughtBot that I knew ThoughtBot for was its testing culture. There have been several ThoughtBotters that have written books now, I think. Uh, Josh Steiner, I think, has one on a... Uh, testing for rails um chad has one about anti-patterns and rails mm-hmm. there's, there's very prolific writers there and and soon to be yourself like really already yourself and you are also writing a book on test-driven development with phoenix so why don't you tell everyone about about the book where did the idea come from you know how, how did this all begin yeah yeah i would love to i don't think i've ever told anybody uh w- where this came from so this is great the original idea was to build a course you know, David, you, you're familiar with Upcase, but to others who aren't, it's like it's uh, like training courses that ThoughtBot used to have. And at some point, we open source them, we set them free. Um, so you can find those videos. And there's a lot of courses there on test-driven rails and testing fundamentals and those kinds of things. My original idea was to do that for Phoenix. But at the time, Tom was really busy. And we, we spoke of Tom previous, before, before the call um, or at the beginning of the call. You know, he, he produces everything. So he has a lot of on his plate. And I thought, maybe maybe this is not something I want to do, you know, as a course. And so then I started thinking as a, as a book. Well, I originally thought about a course that I would myself do. But I have young kids. And it's hard to record with young kids. <laughs> so, so I decided, why don't I write? Because I tend to, um, and this is a secret, I tend to wake up early. I'm a, like a five in the morning, sometimes earlier. Oh my gosh. Person who, yeah, yeah. So, well, my kids wake up at six, so, you know, it's not that early. Um, I know. It's like, if you want to get anything done, you got to get up early. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like, that, that's what I do too. Yes. <laughs> exactly. So, so, you know, what's really, um, what's something you can do early in the morning without waking your kids up is write. And I love writing and writing a book has always been something that I've wanted to do. You know, I still have, um, desires to write like a, a, um, a fantasy book or something like that. But technical writing also really started appealing to me and looking more and more into writing. And so started reading things like um, on writing well and the elements of style and those kinds of books that really help you hone your writing. After a little bit of, of digging and thinking about it, I decided to just go for it and start writing and see where it led. I didn't really plan that much on it or what I would do with it. But this was maybe two years ago when I started. I started when I lived in Philly for sure. And so, you know, 30 minutes, an hour a day, I would just start writing. And it, uh, it kind of, you know, blossomed from there and ballooned into this, this, this book that I have online now. The interesting thing is that because I was doing it alone, it's really tiring, right? It's, uh, you, you got to keep uh, yourself motivated. And there were obviously times when I couldn't keep writing every morning, right? So we moved, for example. So that was a time, a, f- a few months where I didn't touch the book. But in order to keep the motivation and to keep moving forward, one of the things I did was 
essentially put it online for free uh, as a work in progress. That's been a, a very pleasant surprise, the reaction to it, the responses from the community. And it has definitely given me that, that uh, impetus to keep going and to uh, find a, a version of it that will be complete. And we can probably talk more about that. But uh, that, that's how the like, book idea came about. It was originally a course that through life circumstances turned into a book. But I've always wanted to write a book. So it's, it's a, like a great fit. Nice. And you mentioned like, uh, it's hard to keep that motivation sometimes. I, I can relate to that. Like writing a blog post? I, like I, I keep on revisiting this blog post idea and I keep, just keep on revisiting, keep on revising. And eventually just, I just get tired of it. Um, and so you mentioned that, yeah, it's, it's easy to lose motivation sometimes. And I can't imagine what that would be like for chapters and chapters and chapters on in about the same topic. So what are, do you have any tips on, you know, what, what, what kind of things kick you back in the motion? What keeps you, what gets you re-motivated about the topic? Yeah, yeah. A variety of things. One thing is write even without motivation. So that's like, that's a, that, that's what writers say, right? Like, oh, you <laughs> just push through it. Yeah, yeah. You have your time to write every day and you find the motivation in writing. And that's one of the things that I actually committed to before writing the book. I committed that I would um, write the book because I would enjoy the experience. So I wanted to sort of learn to love the aspect of rewriting, which is what most people hate about writing, like the actual going over again and rewriting and fine-tuning the language and all those things. Well, I also hated that, but I wanted to find the, the, the joy in it. The, this book on writing well is phenomenal about that. It speaks to like writing clearly and how that helps you think clearly and those kinds of things. So that, that is one of the motivations. One, do keep it out of schedule, and that's why I do it in the morning. And two, do it for the, for the love of writing because books are not money makers. You know, they're not, it, who knows? I, I didn't know if anybody was going to read it, right? Uh, so I just wanted to do, make sure that I did it with a built-in mechanism that would keep me going. The other thing uh, that I found surprising for motivation was doing things that are similar, like a, adjacent to it, that are not directly related to it. So the testing live you talk that I did sort of came out of that, but it also kind of fueled more the writing of the book, right? So uh, this testing live you talk is the, the talk I gave at ElixirConf. And I was exploring live view, I was exploring testing more and more, uh, you know, testing live view. And that is something I want to add to the book at some point. So that, you know, that's sort of the connection. I wanted to add that. So I thought maybe I do a talk and then it kind of, you know, get some material for the book itself. Um, so that, that's another tip. Do, do things that are not directly related, but that can keep you moving forward in terms of content, in terms of ideas and, um, you know, and just gotcha. again, just the excitement to keep writing. I know that we're here to talk about the book. Um, but I also want to bring up that you've given a talk before at Elixir Days. Um, I forget the title of it, but you were basically going through plug and how to write your own Phoenix like framework. And then you, you got the talk at uh, Elixir Conf 2020 about live view testing, which was great. The topic TDD, why TDD? Why, why does TDD matter to you? And what is the one thing that you want your readers out of this book to get from your book? I appreciate the question because this is, this goes to the heart of, um, one of the reasons why I started the book as well. And also part of the motivation, and I forgot to mention this, and, and the you know uh, what, what motivates me. And one of the things that I thought about writing this book is if I can teach TDD to one person, like if one person gets changed by this book, then I I'm happy that it's out there. And the reason why I say that is because I learned TDD not by accident; it was very intentional, uh, but very very fortunate. So I was working at a different company, not Thoughtbot, and Thoughtbot 
at the time was offering in-person training for TDD. Uh, this was their like earliest offerings of what became Upcase. It used to be called Learn or some some other stuff. I was a new developer, uh, you know, fairly new. I had maybe a year um, of developing experience, experience. And the company I was working for in Boston agreed to pay what was not a trivial amount of money to send a few of us to this to this course because I wanted to, right? Uh, because I because I had followed ThoughtBot and followed those practices, and uh, I really wanted to learn how to do it well. In that course that was taught by Josh Clayton, by the way, uh, that it really changed my career because it taught me a different way of thinking and a different way of solving problems. And it taught me a mechanism by which I can approach problems all the time, right? So TDD and BDD, what this book is, you know, in large part uh, about, is not only something that I use when I write tests. It's, it's actually, I, I follow this even if I don't have any tests. Like even if I, nobody was writing tests, this process has become so completely ingrained in how I uh, problem solve that it's it's really changed my career for the better. And it's actually, I think it was one of the things that helped me in my career as I grew from a developer, you know, very junior, having jumped into programming from economics. That, that, that's my background. I, didn't, I don't have a CS degree or anything. Uh, but it was something that set me apart because I really understood these things and could apply them. And it actually benefited my code. I don't know if you want to dive into what TDD is and BDD. I don't know. If... I think it's a good idea to give like a brief definition. TDD at its core is the red-green refactor cycle, as we call it. And that means you write a test first. You're writing a test about the implementation of what you expect your code to do. And you get a red because it's a test failure. And then you add some implementation and keep moving that test forward until you, the test is green, meaning the test passes, you've satisfied the behavior that you are expecting. And then you refactor. That Many people forget that they, they do test green, test green, test green, and never get to the refactoring. But the refactoring is built into that cycle because you want to uh, improve the code as you, as you write it. The first, the first pass, if you will, the test in green, or sorry, the red and green, you, you can write code that is not perfect or that it's not what you want to ship to production. And that refactoring step is crucial. And now the book dives in large part into BDD as well. Um, and BDD is, if you can think of it as two layers of TDD, you have uh, BDD is behavior driven development, and it comes from the outside in. So you start with a test that is, in my case, at a, a feature test, because it's a, a the web layer, uh, like a user driving through the browser. And you get that red, that test failure at that layer. And you keep running that test until you drop into what we call the inner circle or the inner layer. Uh, and that's when you, for example, it might be when you start um, having test failures that relate to your core of your domain, right? So in the book, uh, we were building a chat application. So anything under the chatter, it's called chatter. Anything under the chatter web domain, we keep testing with the, the, the feature test. But as soon as we uh, have a failure that's related to what we call the chatter namespace, like the, the core domain of our application, we drop in and we start writing another set of red-green refactor cycles inside it. And then once you finish that, you pop back out to the feature test, see if it's green. If it fails for a different reason, suppose you're in a different place of the page and now you have a different test failure for that reason. Then you step back in and do that cycle again. And then you, at some point, the feature test passes. And then you refactor the whole thing. But, and the beauty of that is that you've started with basically a user story, which is your feature test. You're specifying what needs to happen. And at the end of the process, you've completed that and you've refactored it. And you know you have a, the feature is completely working up to the point where the test can uh, specify that. 
I know it's supposed to be a short definition that's a, <laughs> a little bit longer, but um, but I dived into BDD there because the, the book talks a lot about BDD as well. So. One of the things I like that you kind of mentioned there is just this idea of the refactor and how that's an important part of the cycle. And I just remember when I first, I was at a technical conference and I was, that's when I first was given the idea of what TDD meant, or just even writing tests at all, automated tests. And I was like, I don't get it. You're like writing code to test the code that you're writing. It's like, it's just like all this extra work. I was like, you know, I wasn't getting it. And then the guy kind of described it as like, it's like when you have all these tests in place, then you have the freedom to come in like with a machete and go all Indiana Jones, just hack it all up and just kind of mash it back together. And that's like part of that refactor. And it's like, that's what clicked for me. It's like, oh, because without that, you are, you have a strong hesitancy to change anything about the application because it's like, I have to manually retest everything. I love that refactor cycle piece because that's like where you can hack it all up and say, yeah, it's doing what it needs to do, but it doesn't feel right. Or I, I want to try this different approach and see how that feels. Exactly. And you know you haven't broken anything because you have Exactly. Tests. Yes, that, that ability, that certainty that you have something that will notify you if you've changed your behavior, if you've changed the behavior of the app. And like you said, it's, it allows you to go in and do the kinds of changes with confidence that you need to make. So I did want to ask you about the book, though. Right now, you've, you're making it available online. Uh, do you want to tell people where they can find that? Yeah, yeah. So it's available for free at tddphoenix.com. Very happy that I snatched that domain. <laughs> and the whole book is available there. My plan is to continue making it free forever. A, a big inspiration for that was um, I come from the you know from the Rails uh, community, and there was this book. Why am I forgetting? Mike Hartle's tutorial that was very I think influential to a lot of people that were starting getting started with Rails, and it was free online for a long time. So that's you know s- same idea. I had plans to maybe make you know at some point when there's a version one, maybe offer it as a PDF or uh, EPUB, Mobi, those kinds of things. I investigated several <laughs> channels to do that uh, originally, and, and I'll, I'll revisit them when I'm ready for that. But for now, I think the HTML webpage works great. Have you given any particular consideration to looking for publishing, either be it self-published or working with a publisher? Is that something you're considering? Yeah, sure, sure. And I'd love to be as transparent as possible uh, here. When, I think before I made it public online, one of the routes I took was that you can send proposal ideas. It's like not a full proposal, but a just like a, a snippet of like what you're trying to do and uh, for a book to pragmatic programmers and to Manning uh, publications. I heard back from prag, uh, pragmatic programmers, but Chris, I think it was his name. He was extremely kind. Uh, so not, nothing but great things to say about uh, them. But they already had a testing Elixir book in progress, and they felt like it was, you know, somewhat related. So they didn't want to, like, step in those toes. And then I never heard from Manning. And I could have pursued other things, right? There's O'Reilly. There's, And I, I did consider, like, Lean Pub and there's Gitbook, stuff like that. But I was at a point where if it wasn't going to be with Pragmatic Programmers or Manning, which tend to be my favorite books that I see come out, the ones I read the most, I, I wanted to make it free, right? Uh, again, I went back to that giving me the um, the energy to keep going with the book, uh, to have some people read it, and also that, that ability to change someone's life, if it does, right? I, I hope it does. I don't know that it will. Maybe they're just their career. I don't know. But if it does that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tremendous thing, and I, I may never know about it. But be, for those two reasons, and because I was like, I think at that point I had written eight chapters um, of the book, I decided let's just make it, you know, let's just make it free. 
I don't know that I would go a publishing route. Maybe I would for with LeanPub or something like that, self-publishing. It might be a, a little bit too supported, but I don't expect, you know, again, it's not books ten, don't tend to be moneymakers. So uh, that's not why I'm, I would be doing it. Well, I did want to come back to this idea of TDD. Specifically, I, I hear people talk about uh, like, oh, n- no one actually really does it all the way. And, you know, it just kind of, I think some people feel overwhelmed with the idea of it. And I just want to talk about like, how do you feel about like this idea of a spike? Like, if I'm coming at a something new, I've never touched this library before, I don't, I don't even know how to how it's going to fit into my application yet, or how I'm going to solve this problem. Sometimes I'll just like, you know, I've heard it called a spike, where you just like, you're, just, you're coding, you're not writing tests. Like, how do you feel about something like that? And where do you, where does that fit in? I honestly think that's totally fine. I don't know. I know. Um, <laughs> I think people feel, uh, you know, that they would be breaking the TDD mantra or something if you go on a spike. Um, I think the, where the problem comes is if the spike becomes the production code and then you add the tests after, at least in my experience. Um, and But this is also, you got to remember that I have this really ingrained in my head already, right? So it's the way I work. So even when I'm trying to do a spike, sometimes I can't quite I don't know what I'm aiming at unless I write like a, a super high level test of like, I just want to make sure that this page is rendering something, right? And it's not a really good test and I'm, I'm going to throw it away, right? It's just because I need that uh, cycle of like, where am I failing? Where am I missing something? And that's what the test gives you. And if you think about it, this kind of thought process also works with like type-driven development kind of thing where, with, with like Elm, for example, where you just write it. And that's another thing I keep mentioning in the book. You write the code as you wish it existed. And that's a fundamental difference. Like you don't start from the bottom up. You just start from the top down and you write it as you wish it existed and you let the errors guide you. So what I see people do in Spike sometimes, they they are testing it in some way, right? They're trying to see if their Spike is working, but they might be just refreshing the browser. And I find that to be slower just because I'm used to writing tests, right? So like I'll write a test that will later throw away along with the Spike but the test allows me to do that cycle, like just inform me, like, what am I missing here? Or I missed, you know, this, this variable or I, this function is not defined. It just helps me with the process. But I absolutely think there's, there's nothing wrong with, uh, with doing a spike. Again, the TDD uh, flow is uh, both to help you think about the problem. But like you said, Mark, it's about being able to refactor, right? So once you have that spike, if you throw the spike away and then you test drive the, the implementation, then you can refactor confidently knowing that your behavior is there and finding the, you know, the really good solution that you want for the problem. Well, I appreciate you saying that because that seems like something I'm doing all the time. Like I'm doing something I'm not familiar with. I don't even know 100% where I'm going. So I'm just going to write code and then later I'll come in and add the test. And I never really like, that's always my excuse. Like, well, I don't really know what I'm doing, so I'm not sure what to test for. But like you bring up a good point of like, just even just like getting the route set up, getting the initial page rendering, getting the nav in in the right spot, getting the active nav item selected, correct. Just all of those little tiny things could certainly be tested. And then like your refresh cycle is so much faster with your test instead of like, tapping back into the browser and refreshing every time. Yeah, exactly. It's a great point. I do also like that with an automated testing, uh, I can be very focused and say just, you know, just test this one test, just focus on this one test and then makes my IO inspects much more meaningful. And I can just see kind of what's going on behind the scenes a little bit more. Are there any libraries that you use? Like I like mixed test watch. Is there anything like that that you recommend or? I'm a Vim user and I use, I think it's Vim test, but my 
aim is to make the running of the test as fast as possible. I don't, I, I've used watchers before and they're great, but I don't, I like control of when I run the test because sometimes I'll do like a couple of things and then I want to run the test. And, you know, if you're watching the file, then it'll run it and then I have to wait again. So I like really fine grade control of when I run the test. And so I have keyboard shortcut. So leader L is my, my command to run the last test. And it'll just run it in a little vim pane uh, right there. And so I have looked into those things for other um, code editors, and I'm, I, it's in my list of blog posts to write someday. Is um, you know how to set that up for other people, uh, for all code, you know, for the common code editors like VS Code or Atom or whatever else people use, because I think that's so important when you're doing TDD, because you have to be tabbing out into your terminal and then copying the name of the file. Like it just slows you down so much, and you lose that quick feedback loop and so people start skipping steps right because now you don't want to do that so you're just gonna write the, and you end up just writing the code that was a big thing for me um i was a vs code user and i didn't do the shortcuts in there i was just a gui all the way you know mouse cursor then i started getting my wrist pains this common story i'm sure you've heard this on every tech podcast but <laughs> somebody starts getting wrist pains and they start moving to vim or the keyboard uh and that's when i did that and shortly thereafter i started working at thoughtbot um, and some, some folks showed me Vimtest and, oh my gosh, yeah, totally transformed the way that I code. Vimtest was really, really important to my workflow. And like you said, like just having a, a really quick way to, to throw tests into a tab or into a, a terminal or a anything. Um, and so, yeah, one of my shortcuts, like, like you said, yours is a, a leader L my, I have leader T leader, big T mm -hmm. leader, a leader, a will run all the tests. Leader yep. T will run the, the one test that I'm on. Exactly. Big T will run the entire test file. L is the last test. So like, yeah, it's really, it was really, really transformative and really made me think that like TDD is now attainable. <laughs> um, because otherwise it's just, yeah, you lose momentum everywhere. Just like me going from the keyboard to the mouse. It's a small movement, but you know, it's like, it really does. It's like a little, it's a tiny little paradigm, sh paradigm shift on how you interact with the computer. And it was, it started to get annoying. <laughs> no, I a hundred percent agree. I think it's also a little bit of like, it's almost addictive how quick you can be with that. And, uh, when you pair with someone on, a, on their computer and they don't have that, you feel impaired. <laughs> Honestly, it's really, yeah, it's kind of, yeah. it's kind of strange when you get so used to it. So one thing I've noticed with Elixir is sometimes as your application gets larger, the setup time for mixed tests gets longer and longer. Even if you're like telling like Vim test to, to test a specific file, it still takes like, is there something you guys have come up with to like get over that? Cause it starts to add up after a while. It really does. It really does. Um, it's, yeah, it's called Elixir 110, I think. That's, <laughs> that's those compilation, uh, the, the, um, what is it called? The transitive, uh, compilation dependencies, right? Yeah. That's going to be huge for that. Um, I agree. I haven't come out, honestly, I haven't come out with anything that would be great for that. Cause it, it is a pain if you run a test and all of a sudden you have to compile 70 files and it, it takes longer. I unfortunately don't have a solution for that. If anybody does, I would love to hear it because that definitely slows down the, the flow. Yeah. So if you, dear listener, are hearing this and you're like, you just need to do this, like, just let us know. We'll, we'll, we'd be happy to share with everyone. You can tweet us at Thinking Elixir. Well, I'm curious, are there any particular things that you felt you discovered or learned in this process of writing this book? And that could be either like the process of writing or it could even be something like uh, that you may have learned about Elixir or testing. 
Yeah, that's an excellent question. It's certainly about writing. Uh, I think I've learned a ton about writing. And it's just, it, it's the kind of lessons that you keep having to learn because you have your style of writing. I'm super verbose. I mean, I just write really long sentences and I tend to favor Latin words because I speak Spanish. So those are just like things that I, those are words that I translate uh, naturally. But really good writing in English. Uh, again, I keep going back to this on writing well. If you can, if you can read one book on writing, I recommend that one. You know, you want to be terse. You want to be, you want to use um, preferably Anglo words that are really short because they give kind of more power to your writing. And also, I tend to use a passive uh, form of verbs. And so <laughs> changing that to active verbs is what I do all the time. I have to go back and change passive verbs to active verbs. I think that's just, I think that's just a super common thing. It's, it's incredible. I don't know why we do it. <laughs> but what's funny is like when you change it to the active form, it actually gets shorter and more direct. Yeah. Yeah. It, it sounds better. It, it sounds more, um, self-assured right like you know what you're saying kind of thing so uh those are those are some of the, the the tips that i have learned from writing and there's so many more in terms of like how to write a lead and the conclusion and all those kinds of things but i, I keep having to learning there's a vim plugin that i've used um vim wordy that will highlight these kinds of uh, issues in your writing i use it for every blog post that i write uh, it highlights weak words, passive verbs, uh, business jargon, that kind of stuff. Ooh. <laughs> it's It catches me on a lot of stuff. So I, I definitely recommend it if you uh, write any markdown and you use Vim. Yes, please. I'll definitely use that. Thanks for sharing that. All, all my, my entire book is in markdown, of course. Uh, and going back to your question in terms of like learning, testing with Elixir and Phoenix uh, through this process. I mean, I, I've done it. Um, I had done it quite a lot before writing the book. So uh, a lot of the things I could have learned, you know, I had already learned. But I think the things that still catch my interest or that, that are, you know, that are different from what you might do in a Rails or Python or some other code base, right, is the beam, right? So in the book, we're, we're testing channels and I'm actually hesitating. One of my ideas was to sort of scrap all that stuff and go with Live View at some point. But I don't want to just scrap that because I think it's valuable to see how to test channels because you can't, you can't always use Live View and you might want to use channels. And so learning to test those things. And you have, you know, you have things where you're spawning processes and you're, you know, you're doing things in different processes. So how to test those things and how to think about those things it, it are very interesting problems that you have to start thinking about when you test in Elixir and Phoenix. And also inter-process communication. So some of the really interesting things, actually, in terms of purely testing. So this is just for testing fanatics. It's like, you know, you have new tools for asserting things that happen. So, as, you know, as an example is you could, you could inject the process for a particular module that you're testing to be your your um, your test process, right? So now in your test, you can assert that you're receiving messages as though you were somebody else, right? So if your application is supposed to be communicating with a process, but you can inject your test process in there, then now your test process receives the messages that the other thing would receive. So it's it's really neat to be able to think about those things and be able to write those kinds of tests because it's uh, like I said, you know, it's it's only some it's something that only happens in the beam. So it's really neat to change your mindset a little bit into what as to what you're testing. You're not just testing functions at that point; you're testing message passing and that kind of thing. That's cool. I'm really glad you're including some of that type of information and perspective into the book. I'm really grateful just that you're creating this book and doing it in such an open and sharing way. So I, I know any kind of content creation like that takes a lot of time, a lot of effort. So I appreciate that you feel the value of just having it out there for, and sharing it with people. So I encourage all of you uh, who might hear this uh, to, you know, if you're in that discovery phase and you're learning about Elixir and you're like, hey, I want to get this. It's like, it's a great resource. It's something that's just there for you to check out and take at your own speed. I got a last, last question for you. 
in the Rails world, I know that the, the prevalent testing suite there is RSpec. Mm-hmm. And in Elixir world, the prevalent one there is just XUnit. Two different ways of writing your tests, right? One, you're you're asserting that things equal this. It's a little bit more code-like. With RSpec, it's a little bit more linguistic, right? You expect this to equal that, you know, um, a little bit more English-based. And then the way that you set up tests uh, seem to be massively different between RSpec and XUnit. In your experience, have you found that you favor one or the other things that you like about RSpec over XUnit or XUnit over RSpec? Do you have any have any opinions? Since you're writing the book on it, uh, I figure that you've probably uh, you've probably dived into these worlds pretty deeply, so you you probably have some great insight. Uh, yeah, I feel like this is a, a very uh, I could I could talk about this for a very long time probably, but but honestly, I I uh, find both incredibly well-written tool like they're, they're phenomenal tools to to do testing rspec is actually one of those things i love about rail like the rails world or the ruby world it's such a great tool it is something that does everything you can possibly imagine so you can shoot yourself in the foot with it but it also allows for such expressiveness and i love expressiveness in my tests if you watch my testing live you talk the last thing i talk about is like writing our tests or wallaby tests in the domain of your application and rspec just gives you so much power in that regard in terms of like RSpec matchers and all those things. But XUnit has been phenomenal. I mean, I think the tooling that comes with it is so great. Like the just an example, you know, you, you create these case templates that you reuse and you you have this common functionality that you set up. Like all those things are just so well done, so well designed. It's so well designed. In fact, I didn't actually miss RSpec coming to Elixir. There's some familiarity with building custom matchers uh, with RSpec that I had, right? That's the one thing I miss, but I know you can do that in Elixir. I just haven't delved that deeply into it because I haven't had that need. But I love both tools, honestly. They're really great tools. And so, I don't know. I, I, I say go for uh, go for both depending on what you're using, right? Rails or, or Phoenix or Elixir. Well, Herman, thank you for coming on and talking with us. If people want to get in touch with you or follow you online, where should they go to do that? I am usually available online as Germsville. It's G-E-R-M-S-V-E-L. So my Twitter's Germsville, my GitHub's Germsville. And if you, my, my website is hermanvelasco.com, but if you go to germsville.com, it'll also take you there. I've tried to get that uh, name as much as I can. Twitter is where I'll most likely be active. If you, you know, my DMs are open. So if people want to message me, that's totally fine. There's also, of course, tddphoenix.com. There's a, there's a link there to email me if you have comments or suggestions about the book, which by the way, I would love because since I'm not doing this with an editor, uh, it's it's great to just hear from people. And I have, and I'm very thankful for the people who've said, you know, hey, I love the book or hey, there's a typo here or hey, you know, anything uh, is really is really great. So uh, you can contact me that way as well. Well, there's a lot of great resources here. Uh, please check the show notes to follow up with any of that. And thank you so much for coming on. Appreciate it. And we'd love to hear how that goes as you get like, the, I think that the difficulty of not working with an editor is like you, you could just kind of keep revising it for infinity. Right. Like, like at some point you got to say, I'm done. Yes. It'll be interesting just to see like how that goes for you and, and uh, wish you the best of it. And I'm grateful that you're uh, making it available for everyone. Well, thanks so much for having me. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir. If you find value in the Thinking Elixir podcast, either because we help you stay up to date on Elixir news that matters or for the deeper interviews we bring with awesome people doing cool things, then please share it with a friend.